So with that, let's go ahead and look at our verses. Matthew chapter 1. And let's look at uh, verses 1 here through 11. 1 through 11. 6 through 11, mean. I'm sorry. 6 through 11. Starting with this. And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiel, Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, today we continue back with our Advent series, going through Matthew chapter 1, that we started last week. And you guys are probably wondering, well, why in the world are we preaching through a genealogy? Like, let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to baby Jesus. And a lot of preachers and a lot of churches do just that. They skip right over these verses. But what we might miss as modern readers is how critically important these verses are to the gospel. That back in those ancient times, and even today in many cultures, genealogy served as resumes. It was your credentials. It communicated your character, your legacy, your pedigree, your family, and not so much you, but your family and what they accomplished determined your place in the world. And what makes, gene- what makes this genealogy so interesting is that this resume is way too honest. And what I mean by that is that when you put a resume together, you only say the best of the best, the best schools, the best education, the best references, and even with bad experiences, you find a way to spin it. So instead of saying, I left my last, my last job because I hated my boss and he was micromanaging, you write instead in your resume, I learned to adapt to challenging environments. Matthew does not spin Jesus' genealogy. He puts it all in there. The moral outsiders, the gender outsiders, the ethnic outsiders. You had sinners, adulterers, killers, incest, polygamy, prostitution, Moabites, Hittites, Canaanites, people who are enemies of God and cursed by God himself. This is not how you want to put a resume together. So why does Matthew do this? It's to set up Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew puts a resume like this for Jesus to show us that God is not distant from us, but that God is with us. When all of society would exclude these kinds of people, Jesus in his birth identifies, identifies as one of them. That Jesus takes the outsider and brings them in. This genealogy is a message of grace, and this was the heart of last week's sermon. For today, we're going to look at another purpose of Matthew's genealogy, and it's a resume to affirm Christ as king. And we see this throughout, throughout the genealogy here. First, you see this in, in the introduction in verse 1. Verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Now, you guys might not know this, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. 
Christ is his title. It means anointed one in Hebrew. It's where we get the word Messiah. In addition, it says the son of David. Not a descendant of David, the son of David. Now, a descendant of David, that would have been true for, da- true for Jesus because he was from the earthly line, father of Joseph. But it says the son of David. That is specific language for a promised king, and we'll get to that later. Secondly, another reason is that we see this affirmation of kingship in how the genealogy is laid out. If you look at the genealogy, it's broken down into three chapters. You have verses 1 through 6a, which is from patriarchy to monarchy. 6b to verse 11 is monarchy to exile, and verse 12 to 17 is from exile to nativity. So today we're in chapter 2, which is the lineage of kings that Jesus comes from. And then finally, we see this in verse 17, that between each of these three chapters, Matthew says very clearly that there is 14 generations, 14 generations. Matthew does this to connect Christ to the throne of David. And what we need to know here is that Matthew is being very selective here. He's actually passing by many names and many generations in this list. It's not a perfect 14, but he is determined to make it 14. Why? Because something that the Jews did with names was that they attached a number to it. That this was called the gamatria. That every letter of the Hebrew name would be attached to a number corresponding to its place in the Hebrew alphabet. So when you add up the, uh, add up the letters that, that, that were part of your name, that would be your number. Let me show you David's name in Hebrew. That this is David's name and the number. It's 4 plus 6 plus four, 14. So Matthew says here, 14, 14, 14. In essence, he's saying to his readers, Jesus is king, king, king. Now, why is this stuff all important? Two reasons. First, this was the greatest question throughout the ministry of Jesus. Is Jesus the Messiah? Could he be the anointed one? Is he really the king of the Jews? Blind men cry out in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. Let me show it to you. That as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Is Jesus really the king from the line of David? And from Matthew chapter 1 to Matthew chapter 28, the answer from Matthew is that Jesus is king. Secondly, the reason this genealogy is so important and this kingship is so important is that many of the first believers were Jewish and following Jesus was very hard. That men and women had placed their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. They lost their families. They lost their possessions. They were facing the prospect of losing their lives. And they were wondering, is Jesus worth it? Matthew gives this genealogy as a way to give courage to these early believers. Jesus is worth it because he is king. Endure in the faith because he is king. Suffer with joy because Jesus is king. Do you see how significant and meaningful this genealogy was to the believer's faith? Kanye West was right. Jesus is king. All right, I thought that was funny. Okay, so with that, here are the three. You guys took it, took it really seriously. Okay, so with that, here are three insights to understand the kingship of Jesus. Let me show you the three points here. First is this. It's the promised king. Second, the imperfect human kings. And then finally, finally, the savior king, all right? So first, the promised king. You know, in verse 1, when it says... 
Jesus the Christ, the son of David. This is language for a promised king. Now, just to give you guys a little bit of context here. King David is considered in Israel's history as the greatest king who has ever lived. That God himself would say that this is a man following after my own heart. And when King David rules, for the most part, there's peace and security. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that King David is now at a place where he wants to build the temple and to give the Ark of the Covenant a proper home. But God says to David, no, 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 you're not going to do it. Your son Solomon will. Now David's bummed out. He's like, well, why not? I I can do it right now. I I have all the resources. Just let me do it. And God makes a promise to David. Let me show it to you. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Huge promise. He says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God says to David, from your seed, from your seed, from your line of kingship, it will endure forever. That for all eternity, there will be a son of David who will rule on the throne. That even when David dies and Solomon dies and his sons and his sons and his sons dies and so forth, this promise will endure. It says the kingdom will be forever. And the people of God clung to this, even to this day. Jewish people still cling to this promise of a Messiah because as we will learn next week, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the people of God would be conquered and enslaved by four nations. And God would raise up prophets to bring about hope to the people of God by reminding them of this specific promise. Isaiah chapter 9. Let me show you what it says here. Isaiah chapter 9, a very classic Christmas verse here. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. To the throne of David, a child will be born to establish it and to uphold it. You know, let me, let me show you another prophet, the prophet Jeremiah. He was prophet during the time when Israel would be divided into two kingdoms, northern and southern. And the northern kingdom was getting devastated, and the southern kingdom was under attack. And the people of God were crying out, has God failed us? Has his promises failed? God says this through Jeremiah, chapter 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I'll raise up for David a righteous branch, which is just a way of saying someone from the line of David. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and, and, will dwell, and Israel will dwell securely. The promise of kingship endures. And let me just give you one more prophet, Ezekiel. So Ezekiel steps in when the people of God have experienced total tragedy. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been desecrated. The people are in exile. You know, so they're in their darkest time. And the people of God are wondering again, will we ever be restored as a people? Will we ever get our land back? God says to Ezekiel chapter 37, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall dwell in the land that I give to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. 
They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Here's the thing, Ezekiel. David is dead. How is he going to bring about shepherding and peace forever? It's through the promised line of David. Do you guys see? Verse 1, Jesus Christ, the son of David, is no small detail. It is a fulfillment of a promise that Matthew starts this genealogy by swinging for the fences here. Now, what does this mean for us? We, too, long for a good, righteous, and holy king to shepherd and lead us. That we go back to Genesis. Humanity was placed in a a garden where there is flourishing, goodness, peace, meaningful work. And this is all true because God reigned. But when we ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that moment, our sin ushered in brokenness, devastation, and curses. And this is why for unbelievers and believers alike, you know, we know that this world is not all that it should be. And the reason for it is because we have not put God in his rightful place as king. So instead, we trust others to bring about this new hope. You know, this is why for many of us, we go nuts over our politicians. That for some of them, we give them rock star status because we believe that they can save the world. And right now, we're in the heat of a presidential campaign. And I want to share with you some of the slogans a few of our candidates have here. Let me just show you a few of them here, okay? You have Joe Biden, our best days still lie ahead. Cory Booker, we rise. I kind of like that one, okay? Okay. Pete Buttigieg, a fresh start for America. Julian Castro, one nation, one destiny. Elizabeth Warren, we will rebuild the middle class. Donald Trump, make America great again. If you look at all of these, they're all saying the same thing, right? Everything will be better. Everything will be greater. Everything will be happier. Trust me. I'm the hope. Can I just say, to do that would be to misplace our trust. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that as Christ followers, we should not be engaged in politics or not care about our leaders. We must, because God calls us as Christ followers to be restorers, to bring renewal to the world, and to love our neighbors. And one of the ways that we do that is by seeking just and merciful and good policies and leaders to rule. For, for those who live on the margins of society or represent them, for the illegal immigrant or the refugee or the dreamer, for those who live in under-resourced neighborhood, for those who are minorities and experiencing systemic racism, we rightly long for a good and righteous leader. So please hear me. There, it is not wrong to hope in a human leader. The problem is to put all our hope, our ultimate hope, in a human leader. That's the problem. And this leads us to our second point, the imperfect human kings. Any king besides Jesus will fail us. In, Matt, in, in verses 6 to 11, Matthew gives us a selected list of 14 kings, and most of them were either foolish, bad, or downright evil. And let me just show you the first set of names here, okay? So first you have David, the greatest king in Israel's history. But notice how Matthew chooses to describe him in verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Notice Matthew goes out of his way 
not to name Bathsheba, but to say the wife of Uriah. Why? It's not to slam Bathsheba. It's actually to slam David. That when the army was out in battle, David stayed behind. And as he's strolling on top of his palace, he sees a woman bathing in her home. And he would have been the only one to have the vantage point to see all of that. So he lusts after her, calls her into his bedroom, and rapes her. Now, I say rape very specifically because sometimes people say, well, you know, David was an adulterer. I believe that's wrong because to say that he committed adultery is to say that there were two consenting adults. I do not believe Bathsheba would have been consenting because she would not have had the power to say no to a king. So she gets pregnant, and David tries to hide it, and eventually kills Uriah, her husband. Matthew specifically points to this moment in his kingship in the genealogy to say what? David was not very good. Solomon, the wisest king to ever live and the one that rebuilds the temple, incredible, also had 700 concubines and wives who were all from these different foreign lands, and eventually King Solomon himself falls into worshiping these gods. Solomon was not very good. Then you have Rehoboam, who doesn't listen to wise counsel and divides the kingdom. Then you have Abijah, is said in Scripture to have walked in the sins of his fathers. Then you have Asaph, who was good because his heart was true to the Lord. You had Jehoshaphat, who was good. He taught the people to fear the Lord. But then you got Joram, who was evil, who killed his own brothers to get to the throne and idol worship. And God gave him bowel disease, and he died in misery. Then you had Uzziah, and he was was mostly good, but when he tried to offer incense in the temple when he wasn't allowed to, God gave him leprosy. Then you got Jotham, who was good and did right before the Lord. But then you had Ahaz, who was evil, who burned his own sons as offering, and under his leadership, Israel is raided and conquered. But then you have Hezekiah, who was good and reclaimed the nation, But then you have Manasseh who comes back and who was evil and who burned his own sons as an offering. And eventually he does repent and he does become good after burning his sons. So that's kind of a bad thing. And Amos was evil. He did not humble himself like his dad. Then you had Josiah who was good. And at eight years old, what were you doing when you were eight years old? He destroys idol worship and brings the people back to worshiping God. But then Jeconiah was evil and the Babylonians conquer Israel. Now, if you look at this list here, It is very easy to conclude that human kings were not perfect, that many of them were downright evil. As a matter of fact, the way Matthew ends this second chapter of the genealogy is with the kings leading the people in exile. When Matthew gives you these lists of 14 names, he is not trying to impress you. He is trying to tell you you cannot put your hope in human kings because even the best of human kings are flawed and the worst of human kings can be tyrants. So what does this mean for us? It means that we are not fit to be king. That many of these evil kings are reminders that we, don't, that we don't naturally love God's authority and kingship. And because of this rebellion against God, it brings curses. That many of, the, many of the stories of these kings, there is suffering, there is despair, there is loneliness, there's abandonment, there's vengeance, there's death, there's exiles. You, me, others, we are not fit to be king. What that means is that for some of us who place our hopes on an election, that we're so convinced that if this leader is put in power, all things will be right. This will not happen because even the most noble of leaders is marked with sin. 
But this is not just what political leaders to watch out for. We also have to watch out for ourselves because sin would love to have you think that you are in charge, that you get to call the shots, that in the Garden of Eden, the serpent's temptation to Adam and and Eve was not to eat the fruit. The temptation was autonomy, that you can be your own God. You can be your own king or queen. Why be ruled when you can rule yourself? Do you see? Sin is not just a rejection of God, it's a replacement of God. The throne of your life never stays empty. Someone is always going to be sitting on the throne of your life. Either it's going to be God or the idol that you have made your God. And the Bible is so clear on this that we're always going to be slaves of one of two masters. Either it's going to be to God or it's going to be to sin. And anything that rules over you that is not God will only bring condemnation. That anything that we look to to give us significance, meaning, security, outside of God will not set us free, but only enslave us. Sin is a harsh king. It will make promises it cannot keep. It will disappoint and blame you, telling you that it's all your fault. Human kingship, whether we look to others or we look to ourselves, does not bring hope. It will only bring about hurt and disappointment. That's the story of the human kings of Israel. They do not bring life. They only bring death. Did you know that your spouse cannot save you? Your political leader or political party cannot save you. Your kids cannot save you. Your hard work cannot save you. You are not fit to be king. You know, many years ago, a British philosopher and theologian, J.K. Chesterton, responded to an essay question that a newspaper, London Times, sent to many writers, saying to these really established writers, could you just write a little article and answer this simple question? What's wrong with the world? So Chesterton writes a letter back and says this, Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, J.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? It's me. It is me. Starts here. And this leads us to the third point, the Savior King, the Savior King. The purpose of this genealogy is not for us to place our hope in these human kings, but it's to begin to point our eyes to a better and greater king, Jesus Christ. Notice in this genealogy, who's the first to be named in verse 1? Jesus. And who's the last to be named in verse 17? Jesus. You see that? What this tells us is that Jesus was not an afterthought in God's redemptive plan, but that Jesus has always been God's plan. That from the beginning of history to his coming return, Jesus is the king that that history centers itself around. That that there's nothing in this genealogy that happens by accident, nothing at all. That all of it is intentional and all of it is pointing us to a king who would come, Jesus Christ, the son of David. And what this 
this means is that you are not the center of history. I am not the center of history. This generation is not the center of history. Empires and nations and human rulers are not the center of history because empires have come and gone, nations have come and gone, rulers and kings and queens and presidents and dictators have come and gone. At the center of all history will only stand one king, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. When Matthew writes this genealogy, during this time, many people had a hard time seeing Jesus as the center of history. That Israel was conquered by Rome and insignificant. That there was no one paying attention to the family tree anymore because it's been hundreds of years of oppression. They've just given up on all of that. But God made a promise to David that his throne would be established forever and ever. And Matthew puts in chapter 1 that God fulfills his promise in Jesus Christ. This gives us so much hope and encouragement. Because for some of us, it doesn't look like Jesus is the center of history today. That the world is not looking to Christ to, for hope and for rescue. That the world looks to the markets, to the White House, to world politics. Once again, not to say that these things are not important, but God is not dependent on Washington to fulfill his purposes. He weaves all of history to this one end no matter what. Jesus will reign. And many of you might be like these Jewish believers discouraged and wondering, is God going to fulfill his promises that you look around you and nothing seems to be going the way that it should be going? Don't be fooled. God is doing his greatest work. That Jesus is not just on the front of, the, of this genealogy, he's also on the back of this genealogy. That Jesus doesn't just begin the story, the story ends with him. And do you know what that tells us? Jesus wins. This promised and perfect king has come and will come again and will bring flourishing life and justice, not just for a few decades or for a generation, but forever. You know, you know earlier as a church, we had a chance to light the Advent candle of peace. And Advent is the Latin word for coming. That during Christmas, we look back at the first coming when Jesus comes as an infant so that he would grow up and become the savior of the world. But Advent is also a time to look forward to when Jesus will return as a victorious and conquering king who will not just bring peace for a season or, or just for a nation, but a king that will bring a peace between God and man and humanity and creation for all eternity. That when we light these candles down here, we're looking forward to a better and greater peace because in Jesus we have a greater and better king. And he is not just king of one people group, the Jews, but he is the king of the world. Once again in verse 1, notice here, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham is also language that points to a promise and fulfillment. That back in Genesis 17, God makes a promise to Abraham. Let me show it to you. Behold, my covenant is with you, speaking to Abraham, and you, Abraham, shall be the father of a multitude of nations. God promises that Abraham will be the father of nations. So when you combine Jesus, the son of David, and the son of Abraham, it is meant to tell you that he is going to be the king of the nations, the king of the world. But here's the problem. 
How could Matthew justify this? Because the only way Matthew could affirm the rightful kingship of of, of Jesus was tracing back Jesus' family tree through the male Jewish line. That's how patriarchal genealogies work, that you could only do that through the males in the family to show his rightful place on the throne as king. So how could God fulfill his promise to Abraham through Jesus? Matthew does it through the line of of women. This is genius. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth, a Moabite. Bathsheba was married to Uriah, the Hittite. Do you see how Matthew worked the nations into the genealogy? That Jesus is not just king of one people, of one ethnic group, that he is going to be king of all people and of all nations. Jesus is going to be king over all. Notice that in this genealogy that everyone is on it, from the least to the greatest, from the most religious to the least religious, male and female, moral and immoral, different races, prostitutes and kings and queens are all on the same list. Why? Because all of us stand before Jesus the same. He is king. Amen? Amen. So what's an application for us here? How are you going to respond to this king? How are you going to respond? That just like Jesus, during his earthly ministry, there were three primary responses to Jesus. One is rejection. The religious leaders hated him and rejected his claims and attacked his character. Eventually, they sought to kill him because they would not bend the knee to Jesus. That's one group. Is that you? There's another group. That these are the folks who casually observed Jesus. These were the crowds. They loved what Jesus could give to them. They loved his teaching. You know, they loved the fish and the bread. But when it came time to carry the cross, they walked away. They were fans. They were not followers. And I truly believe that there are many sitting in our churches today who are right here. That they like Jesus, but they don't want to be like Jesus. That they associate with Jesus, but they won't die for Jesus. That these are people who will one day stand before Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, look at all that I did for you. And Christ will say, I I never knew you. I never knew you. Is that you? And here's the third group. It's those who surrendered to the king. If Jesus is king, he reigns over all of your life. And Jesus himself said when he began his earthly ministry, he expected no less from any of us. Matthew 4, 17, he says this. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent is a word that tells us to get off the throne of our lives and to let Jesus rightly sit on it. Now, what does that look like? It means obedience. Whatever he asks you to give, you give it. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says to the rich young ruler, you know, if you want to follow me, give all, that you, give all that you have to the poor, then follow me. Now, when you hear that, that would be an arrogant request. How could Jesus dare make a request and demand like that? The only way Jesus could do that is only if he knew he was worth it and that all that we have belonged to him. He is king. To surrender to the king also means 
that wherever he leaves you, you will go, that you are making disciples. Once again, this theme of kingship isn't just at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, but continues all throughout the book of Matthew, all the way to the final chapter in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. Let me show you Matthew 28. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is kingship. That is kingship. That is authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. All authority in heaven, in heaven, and on earth belongs to Jesus. In his resurrection and ascension, he proves his kingship and authority. And what does this king call us to do? To go and make disciples. Disciple-making is not an optional thing to consider. It is marching orders from your king. Are you going to obey it or not? Does he rule over every area of your life? Work, school, parenting, household, recreation. Jesus is not looking to be your homeboy. He is your king. You know, before Kanye West shook the world with his conversion to Christianity, there was another musical artist that shook the world, Bob Dylan. Okay, many of you guys were not born at this time. Okay, I wasn't yet, okay? In the 70s, he converted to Christianity and in those few years, he actually, he actually unconverted a few years later, okay? But, but, but we're just going to use his Christian years, okay? But during those few years, he actually released a, winning, a, a Grammy-winning song called You Gotta Serve Somebody. Let me show you some of the lyrics of this song. It's very insightful. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barbershop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be someone's mistress. You may be someone's heir. You may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you might be living in a dome. You might own guns and you might own tanks. You might be someone's landlord. You might even own banks. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes. Indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Friends, if you're going to bow your knee, let's bow it to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that again, it's in your son, the promises are fulfilled. And Father, forgive us. Forgive us when we've placed our hope and our trust in human rulers, in other people, in ourselves, to give us the only things that you can give us. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be people who would cling to your promise, to know that in Christ, that he is our king, that he is sovereign, that he is good, that he is just, that he watches over us. The Father, that it's in him that we live for. And God, would you help us in the church to live in light of that truth? That God, that we would not live as the crowds. That God, that we would not live as the, the religious teachers. But Father, that we would live as the disciples surrendered to our King. Father, help us to glorify him. Help us to make much of him in our obedience. It's in his name.